All right, part four, I have right here a 16 doctrines. And uh, let me tell you before we get into it, what it is that we're going to be discussing and how we're going to go forward with the 16 doctrines. One of the things I think is sometimes overemphasized is theology. I have two degrees in philosophy. I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out the Bible on my own. And I think it's really, 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 really important to take seriously what the Scripture has to say. But wrangling over theoretical theologies is not really very helpful. And the Assemblies of God also took that position when they formed 100 years ago. And they said, we are not going to have doctrinal statements. We are not going to have anything that has that much of the fingerprints of humanity on it. We're just going to have the Bible and believe it because that is the Word of God. And we're just going to have the Bible. We're not going to have doctrinal stances. But that created a problem. In 1914, the Assemblies of God was formed when 300 pastors and leaders of the Pentecostal revival that was occurring at that time got together and decided, hey, let's work together instead of separately. We'll probably get more done. So they formed a fellowship of independent churches called the Assemblies of God with no doctrinal statements. We just believe the Bible. When they did that, things went great for two years. <laughs> and then... They had a big uh, camp meeting. You know, back in the day, they used to have prayer meetings that would last days. And these people could pray. And God was doing stuff, and it was just a neat time. Now, it'd get people to come for an hour prayer meeting, it's, it's like pulling teeth. But back then, they'd go for days. But they were at one big prayer meeting. And there was a guy at the meeting who thought to himself, you know what, I really feel impressed that we need to honor Jesus, that we need to magnify Jesus that we need to put Jesus in his rightful position. So far, so good. And then he said, and in fact, you know what? There really is no such thing as God the Father, and there really is no such thing as the Holy Spirit. It's just Jesus from different angles. The Holy Spirit is just Jesus. And God the Father is just Jesus. There's only Jesus. There's not the Trinity. There's just Jesus. Now we're starting to get weird, right? Because who was Jesus praying to then? You know, like, seems simple. But a bunch of people at the meeting were like, yeah, you're right, man. It is only Jesus. And the other people were like, no, <laughs> no. Uh, there's clearly Jehovah who is not Jesus. And there is the Spirit of God, which is not Jehovah. And it's not Jesus but they do seem to be tied together. So, I mean, to say that the Holy Spirit isn't God seems wrong and that Jesus isn't God seems wrong. So we've got the Trinity, you know, but, but they are separate. And they would say, nope. And so the argument became, well, but the Bible says it's only Jesus. And the other people were like, uh, no, the Bible clearly talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the other people were like, nope, the Bible teaches it's only Jesus. And so it got to be uh, one of those things. Oh yeah, well the Bible says this. Oh yeah, well it says that. Have you ever been in one of those arguments? How far does that get? Gets you nowhere. And so they're like, oh no. We have to make doctrinal stances <laughs> so that we can say what we think the Bible says. 
because they didn't want to have this, which, which became oneness Pentecostalism, still around today, the Jesus only movement. And they're like, we can't, we can't allow that. We, we can't deny the existence of God the Father. <laughs> we can't do that. So they decided, okay, we're going to have to have doctrinal stances. And so that's why you get this document. It was not because they wanted to have them. They didn't want to have them. Most of the time, these things just cause problems. People argue over them, and it gets people off track of what's really going on. And you got to take a few stands here and there to kind of explain what's going on. Also, let me tell you this. In the year 2000, 1999, probably when I was filling out all my paperwork after I had taken my correspondence classes to become a certified minister with the Assemblies of God, I had to sign a document that said, I agree with the 16 fundamental truths of the Assemblies of God. Now, more nicely stated as the 16 doctrines. You had to sign it and say, I agree with them, and if you don't, which ones and why? And so, there were two of them that I thought, meh, that's for sure. So, I signed the thing, but I checked the not so sure about some of them box. And, you know, back then I'd write big long things. I had a really big long thing about this one. Here's what I think, and I don't think it's quite right because of this, and I'm not so sure about that. And here's this one, and I'm not so sure about this, and I'm not so sure about that. And their response was, great, come on, plant a church in the assemblies of God. So, the idea that you must to every letter believe every, you know, eh, okay. Let's not get that like choking each other involved in the doctrinal stuff, all right? Understand, this This is what's at the core of the assemblies of God. That's not going to change. If there's things in here you can't stomach, then that's kind of unfortunate, and maybe that's going to influence the direction you go in your, your church-seeking experience. But it doesn't have to be a thing where we all think the same. In fact, that's very, very unhealthy. I think that we all need to be free to be where we're at and be growing in our understanding of God and growing in our understanding of theology and the scriptures and that sort of thing. I've been a Christian now since 1988, but man, have my opinions changed over those 26 years. Very, very different things <laughs> at different times in those 26 years. How many people in your Christian walk have just, when you first became a Christian or just as a little kid, boom, you got it all and there you were and you didn't grow and learn anything after that. Man, we change our perspective, we learn, we develop, we understand things. So there needs to be room for people to not agree and not see things exactly the same because we need to be free to discover the things of God without feeling pressured into thinking specific things. But this is what the Assemblies of God stands for. Very important to know what it is. I do not tell people the two doctrinal stances that I wrote my issues down about because I don't want people running with that. And I would say now I'm good with all 16, so I don't write the exemption down when I sign. But it took me some time to, to see some of that stuff. And that's perfectly fine. That's a, a consistent principle within the Assemblies of God, and it is a consistent principle here at Good Hope Church. We are going to allow people time to learn, and as long as they're willing to put up with us, I am willing to put up with them. So let's look through these. We're going to cover the first eight this time, and then next week we'll cover the second eight for the first half, and then the second half will be just free questions of any kind. Don't you think number eight is ridiculous?
anything like that. I'm very open to those types of questions, as long as it's not overly mean-spirited, you know, don't throw anything and stuff like that. But, but hey, people have real questions about these sorts of things, and this is Pentecostal doctrine, which you'll find out if you don't know what that means. You'll find out what that means here shortly. And there's stuff in there that average people are like, what? So we need to have the freedom to be able to ask questions and to wonder and to question and to grow through that. I am firmly committed to that. Uh, again, two degrees in philosophy from state schools as a Christian, I'm good with disagreeing with people and still being friends. It's not hard for me at all. Re I'm real good at that. So feel completely free to disagree, but let's keep a right heart. So let's go through the first eight of these 16 doctrines, and I'm going to Go through the first. Number one, the Bible is inspired. That means that the Scriptures are the Holy Word of God. Holy Bible, that means it's the Word of God. We believe it is inerrant, no mistakes in it, and that it has authority over my opinion. So if the Bible says, love your enemy, and my opinion is, no, choke my enemy, which one has greater authority? The Bible does. Bible says love your enemy. Okay, wow, how am I going to do that? That's going to take some personal growth. <laughs> and then you work through the process. And it's going to take, that takes lots of time. And how many people have got there completely? And I'm getting closer, but sometimes I still have enemies I want to choke. And I'm the pastor guy, so I'm pretty sure there's other people like that. The Bible is inspired in the Assemblies of God means verbal plenary inspiration. The Assembly of God perspective is that the Bible in its original manuscripts, not in the English, but in the Hebrew, in the Greek, in whatever language that particular book was written in, at the time it was written, was inspired by the Holy Spirit through a person to write it down or speak it. The Holy Spirit guided everything, including the choice of words, but the individual writer or speaker, because a lot of them were spoken and somebody else wrote it down, but the individual person, their way of speaking, their vocabulary, their personal way of talking is in there too. So nothing in there is wrong, but you can see a personal style. You can see a personal way of speaking by a particular individual. So it's verbal plenary inspiration inerrant Word of God, but you can see the style of the various people that were used by God to do that. If God speaks to me and I share it with you, I share it with my language and vocabulary and my way of speaking. It can very much be from God, but you can tell it's me saying it. So that's verbal plenary inspiration. There is one true God. Hallelujah for that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So this is the Trinity one. There is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the one that happened because of the oneness deal. The Lord Jesus Christ is fully God. So that's number three. Jesus wasn't a really good man that happened to do good enough to get promoted to Messiah. Uh, you know, He didn't climb the spiritual ladder and get to Messiah. Fully God, not like a super cool angel who did really awesome, but actually God. So, Jesus is fully God. Yes, one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but Jesus, fully God. So, pre-existent before 
his birth in the manger and all that stuff. They're at creation, that sort of thing. Number four, humankind fell as a result of sin. So when God created the earth and Adam and Eve, everything was awesome. Adam and Eve had a wonderful relationship with God. My favorite expression of that is Adam naming the animals. You guys remember when that happened in, in Genesis? God creates all these animals and he's hanging out with Adam. And God was like, hey Adam, you want to see this? And an elephant walks by. And Adam's like, wow! And God's like, hey, what do you want to call that thing? And I'm like, oh, that's an elephant. And God's like, yeah, it is an elephant. Good job, man, you know? And then, hey, check this out. You know, and a giraffe walks by. And it's like, what do you want to call that? That's a giraffe. Yeah, Adam, that is a giraffe. God is sharing his creation with Adam and letting Adam participate in it. And it's just an amazing relationship. Just incredible. But that ended because sin came into the world. Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit they weren't supposed to eat. There's one rule. Follow the one rule. They couldn't follow it. And it made Adam and Eve hide from God because they knew they had sinned against God. So they ran, they hid, and it ruined that relationship. And a curse came on the earth. Just a big mess. Humankind fell as a result of sin. So that's a very, very important doctrine, the fall of man. Number five, so this separation that happened between God and man through sin, God offers salvation through his son Jesus. That means that the blood of Christ is sufficient for each individual to restore a right relationship between a person and God. The price was paid, the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that price. And he paid it for each one of us. And so when we accept that and acknowledge it and put our faith on that, then our sins are forgiven and we have that restored relationship. And we can we can talk to God again. We can pray and he'll listen. And he'll just want to spend time with us and we can worship him and just be in the presence of God, not in the in quite the fullness that we will be in <laughs> later. But man, we can have a close relationship with God now. So God offers salvation through his son, Jesus. Uh, number six gets a, a little bit more interesting. And then, of course, seven and eight are big ones. But uh, let's look at six. Our church practices two ordinances. We have what we call ordinances, which would be communion and baptism. And so the basic idea is these are religious practices that are symbolic of something that's actually happened. but the thing itself isn't the deal that is significant to God. Like, for example, baptism, it's not that baptism is the thing that takes your sins away. It's the blood of Christ and trusting in the blood of Christ and you're identifying with that in your baptism. The death and resurrection symbolism of the dunking baptism and that sort of thing. But it's not like if you get in a car accident on the way to your baptism that your sins aren't forgiven because you haven't had them actually washed away. That's symbolic of what's actually happened in your heart and the new creation that's occurred. It's not the spiritual change itself in the ritual. It's that that's symbolic. So that's why it's called an ordinance. There are Christians who believe that baptism itself, the ceremony of baptism, is the thing that takes your sins away. So that if you do die, before you get baptized, you go to hell. There are people who think that. The Assemblies of God, in my personal opinion, is that that's not the case, that it's a symbolic thing. And so uh, that's why it's considered to be an ordinance. 
And then same thing with communion. Communion, we are remembering what Jesus did on the cross. We remember that He bled and died for our sins. We remember that His body was broken for our healing. And so we've got the, the body and the blood of Christ. We remember that. We get a cracker. We get some juice, which wasn't exactly how they did it back in the day, but you know, it's close. <laughs> the volumes were different. Some believe that this actually becomes the body and blood of Christ, and there's there's something amazing that's happening there. We believe that's it's symbolic. It's a cracker and it's juice, you know, that sort of a deal. Now, something profoundly spiritual can happen at baptism, and profoundly spiritual things can happen when you take communion. The main thing is it's a symbolism. It's not like, oh, you better take communion or else this isn't going to work for you. Or, you know what I mean? So it's a it's a symbolic thing rather than a, a thing that gets God to do something for you. And we do dunking baptism rather than the sprinkling and that sort of a thing. And there's specific reasons for that. We do adult or baptism for people who are able to specifically choose to be baptized. We'll do baby dedications and dedicate the child to the Lord, and that's basically a charge to the parents in the congregation. Hey, parents, raise this kid in a Christian home, and hey, congregation, give this kid an opportunity to grow up in a group of people that can be good spiritual influences on them. And then we do pray blessings and protection over the child and that sort of thing. It's really a charge to the parents in the congregation because we don't believe that if you don't baptize the baby that the baby's in danger. They're not. God's not going to send a baby to hell because the parents didn't follow some ritual. You know, that's a, it's an unfortunate thought process. God's way smarter than that. It's a primarily a symbolic thing. We do baptism for people who are old enough to choose to say, yes, I want to be baptized. And they do that after having made a commitment to serve Christ. So that's the deal with baptism and communion. Don't underestimate the significance of those things. God has touched people in this place when they've taken communion. Something happens to people when they get baptized. One time we did an October baptism in a river north of here. It was cold. Everybody had a religious experience that time. You know, you, you put them in, they come up like, oh! you're like, wow, God's touching you. Like, no, I just can't breathe. That was cold. So baptism and communion, those are ordinances. And uh, we consider them to be primarily symbolic, though, though real touches from God can occur in those moments. And uh, it's important to be baptized as a choice. It's not about finding the ritual form that appeases God. You know what I mean? Like it's not, oh, God gets mad if the pastor says this when you get baptized, so I better get baptized again because I want him to say the right thing when I do that. It's not about finding the ritual form that appeases God. He's Again, he's way smarter than that. But when we submit to these sorts of things, when we engage in these sorts of things, and we open ourselves up to the Lord in these sorts of ways, man, things happen. God, things happen. So they're, they're important. I don't want to undersell them because it's symbolic, but it's not the actual dunking that washes your sins away. All right. Number seven, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is for everyone. As I mentioned last week when we went through the mission statement, we are a spirit-filled church, which means we believe all the Holy Spirit stuff, all the miracle stuff of the New Testament, believe that we are still in New Testament age even today. So one of the key concepts of the Pentecostal revival was that the Holy Spirit 
is available to everyone who would seek the Holy Spirit, not exclusive to certain people. It's not like, well, these people have the Holy Spirit, but these people don't. It's that everyone has access to the Holy Spirit and that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is for everyone. Now, baptism, the word itself means to immerse or to, you know, just completely envelop. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about baptism in the Holy Spirit because I believe there's some basic misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit. As a non-Christian, looking back, I can see times where the Holy Spirit was prompting me, was interacting with me in various ways. I wasn't even a believer. So I believe the Holy Spirit interacts with people who don't even believe in God. How do you get drawn to the Lord in the first place? The Spirit draws you in. So the Spirit clearly interacts with people who aren't even believers. But can there be a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit than that? Absolutely. When you get saved and you become a believer, now you're much more open to the Holy Spirit. You have an opportunity to have a closer relationship with the Holy Spirit. But when you first get saved, well, depending on how you get saved and what all happens there, you may not have experienced the fullness of the Spirit at that point too. There can be more. I got saved in a fairly miraculous situation, which I should tell. So when I was 19, met her, she's cool. We started kind of going out, but we never went anywhere. We just were at work all the time. So we we're just hanging out at work, but going out, whatever. But we were working together and always busy. So we've never spent any time together, but we we're going out. And she's like, you got to come meet my dad because we're a Christian family and we don't let anybody date outside the faith. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that sounds cool. So so I went over and met with uh, her dad and he asked me, hey, are you a Christian? And I'm like, uh, I'm not a Hindu. What do you mean? You know, like, uh, he's like, okay, well, you're not. So um, would you like to know more about that? And I thought, well, sure, that'd be great to know. If uh, God's real, that'd be good information to have. So uh, why don't we work on that? And he was like, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a Bible if you promise to read it and we'll kind of take it from there. Sweet. So uh, he gave me a Bible, started to read it, got to Matthew 7. I didn't read a lot at a time. A couple weeks later, I got to Matthew chapter 7, because I started in the book of Matthew, so it's averaging about a half a chapter a day. And uh, I got to Matthew 7, 7, where it said, Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. And I thought, okay, I can find out that. Look at that. That's a testable verse. I grew up in a scientific worldview home, you know, uh, hypothesis. And then you test it, and then you revise your hypothesis, and then you test it, you look for evidence. And I thought, well, okay, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. I can seek. If I find, that's true. If I don't find, that's not true. I can find out. So I thought, well, let's find out then. So prayed a, prayed a quick prayer. I was driving home about midnight, dropped her off at home, driving back to where I was staying, driving my dad's old truck. Stars are out, midnight, about this time of year. I just decided to pray. I'm like, well... Let's find out. So I prayed the first prayer I'd ever prayed in my life, 19 years old. I said, Lord, there's this guy. He gave me a book. He says, it's your book. In the book, it says, seek and you'll find, knock, and the door will be opened, and I'm knocking. And as I was driving home, I mean, right that second, then I saw in the sky, I saw two hands appear like this, and then they opened up like that, and then that went away. And I slowed down and didn't tell anybody. Because it was a scary experience for me. And 
I didn't tell her, I didn't tell her family, I didn't tell anybody for like two years. Again, coming from the scientific worldview, I had to evaluate my sanity and all that sort of thing. What's more likely, there's a goofball out there or there's some being that can hear people talk while they're driving in the truck. And so, I mean, that seems very unlikely. It's more likely that there's somebody who's a goofball. Uh, and unfortunately, that might be me. You know, so I had to reevaluate all that stuff and see if I'm just a crazy person and all that. But eventually got to the place where I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give my life to the Lord because what more do I need from him? You know, who am I to walk away if he's going to do that? I better not walk away from that. So I decided, okay, I'm, well, I'm in then. But I, I had met some of these Holy Spirit people, and I thought they were weird people. And uh, I was not good with the idea of the baptism in the Holy Spirit because I just thought, this is just weirdness. Why? What is that? And so I did not seek that. I didn't want that. I was perfectly good. My mentality was, hey, God's done more for me than he's done for a lot of other people. I don't need anything else. I'm just going to go from here. And uh, so I wasn't seeking any more touches from God or anything like that. I figured, like, I got enough. I'm good. And uh, that was a terrible thought because we need God every day. We need more every day. We leak the stuff of God that hits us. We need more all the time. I had not understood that at that time. But then, as the years went by, the easy button for me was hate. I was a, like a, addicted to anger and hate. That was my drug. I developed that through sports. That you know, that's how you get psyched up and that sort of thing. You pretend your opponent has shot your brother or something like that, and you just let it come up and just go into a, an attack and that sort of thing. So I developed this addiction to the adrenaline rush of hate. And guess what? There's an easy button for the enemy. And so having become accustomed to hating and that sort of deal, I was quick to hate people even as a new believer, and specifically to hate Christian people and Christian leaders because I thought they were just doing a horrible job, and so I hated them. And I'm again, I'm a nice guy, right? Friendly. I like people. But I just thought, these people, they've got, they've got God, and they've done this. You know, they've squabbled and fought and, and created a cartoon character, Jesus, He's the Alpha and the Omega. What's the matter with these people? You know, and I just, it just drove me crazy. And coupled with that hate addiction, I just hated, especially pastors and Christian leaders and people like that, because it's their fault. <laughs> They're the ones in charge of this thing. It's their fault. And so, like, my family is going to hell because these people have created a ludicrous gospel that no rational human being can believe in. So my people are going to... So I was very upset. And uh, I carried that for years. And I was at a big conference, a, a, a Promise Keepers deal down in the cities. This is about six or seven years after my initial getting saved experience. And I was just carrying that. It was building all the time. And I was just getting madder and madder and just more disgusted and all that stuff. And, and so meanwhile, how usable am I? Is God going to be able to use a young man like that? No, just an upset young man that's toxic. So went to this big thing at the Dome, 65,000 men, big men's conference deals, awesome. And they decided they're going to have all the people in ministry stand up and we're going to clap for them. You know? And I just thought, I am not going to do that. They're the problem. I'm going to cheer for these goofballs and 
But where am I going to go? Can't leave. <laughs> this big thing, and there's little chairs at the dome. So I thought, well, I'm just going to wait it out. I'm going to wait it out and sit here and whatever. And uh, so they had people stand up, and when they stood up, I recognized certain ones of them. The one guy and his kid, I passed him in the hallway, smiled at him, and, you know, said something high. Another guy, I was in the hot dog line with that guy, you know, I'm like, oh, I didn't hate them when we were in the hallway. I didn't hate that guy when we were in the hot dog line. I didn't realize these were the bad guys. Wait a minute. Maybe these aren't the bad guys. And then just like this thing of, hey, these are just people trying to do the best they can. And what are you doing? You know, and it was just like this experience is happening while they're standing up. So I'm having this going on in, inside me and everybody's standing up and they're cheering and I'm standing up. I don't remember how I got standing up, but I'm standing up. This thing is hitting me and the, the idea of, oh my gosh, I'm wrong in a significant way. And that hate was like, like if it was a bucket of water and the bottom of the bucket just fell out and like in the middle of my chest and I felt it just go, just drop. And like a compassion or a love for the greater body of Christ, just for these people that are just trying to serve God, but they're, they're people, just like everybody else. A love for them came in. It was just amazing. So I was going to go, oh my goodness, what in the world? And when I went, oh my goodness, what in the world? It was not English. And then I'm like, oh, what was that? So I just sat down. I'm like, oh, what in the world was that? You know? So I just sat down and, and tried to come to terms with that. Which brings us to number eight. There is an initial physical evidence for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the, uh, the Assemblies of God position is speaking in tongues is the initial physical evidence for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So speaking in tongues uh, is referred to in the, in the New Testament fairly regularly. It's a, it's a deal where you speak in your non-native language. So like for me, English, I can speak English. But I was speaking in some other language and I didn't know what that was and scared me again. And so I stopped. One of the things that was characterized in the early 1900s, that Pentecostal revival, was a lot of people speaking in tongues. Uh, you may have noticed this morning in the second service we had a lady speaking in tongues. We're good for that. That's the initial physical evidence for baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let me give you three common misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Number one, I believe the Holy Spirit is present in the lives of everyone, believers, unbelievers, only in different ways. For example, you can have different experiences with water that aren't necessarily baptism. You can have a drink of water, you can get rained on, or you can get dunked. That's all water, but they're different types of experiences. I feel like there were times where the Holy Spirit showed me things or prompted me in certain ways when I wasn't even a believer. That was not the same as the experience I had that took the hate out of my heart. Man, oh man, to have the hate taken out of your heart, if you had that happen, man, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. That was an immersion in the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a little touch. It was a flood of the Holy Spirit that was life-changing for me. So I, I don't think it's a yes-no Holy Spirit thing. I think it's a how much, to what extent, is it a little bit? Is it a lot? That sort of thing. So this baptism in the Holy Spirit isn't yes, no on the Holy Spirit. It's the fullness of the Spirit, the immersion, this like complete envelopment in the Spirit. Number two, misconception. There's a difference between the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues that operates in a public service. 
Not everybody's going to speak in tongues in a public service. That's a fairly rare gift. doesn't happen very often. But I believe everybody can speak in tongues when baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's mostly going to happen like in your personal prayer time, your devotional time, that sort of thing. doesn't always happen in a public setting. And then third thing that I think is very, very important is we live up north, and do you know it's good to raise your hands in worship? Do you know that? It's good to do that. People up here, it's scary to them. Uh, clapping is very scary. A friend of mine, pastor in Hill City, he told me one time, you know, he'd been pastor there for several years, and he's like, hey, man, I finally got my people to start clapping during the song service. You know, I'm so excited, but I have to be clapping. And then if I stop and scratch my nose, everybody stops. They're like, oh! Oh, you're supposed to do something different. You know, like, they're just, this is a reserved part of the country. Would you agree? So when you are going to show this initial physical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you actually have to speak out loud. If you don't speak, if you just sit there stoically, you may very well be enveloped in the Holy Spirit. But nothing's going to come out of your mouth because you're not saying anything. You're quiet. And so I believe there are lots of people who've been baptized in the Holy Spirit who've had these experiences with the presence of God, the Spirit of God. They haven't spoken in tongues because they're just reserved. (laughs) You know what I mean? So if that makes sense, because for me, when that thing happened, man, all I had to do was just not talk. All I had to do was stop. It's not like you're getting carried away by something, you know. You're you're in control of yourself. It's not a a different type of thing. So you've actually got to do the speaking. And so there are those sorts of things that can hinder the initial physical evidence or have people misunderstand. This isn't the gift that occurs in the public service. So there we go. So the Assemblies of God position, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is for everyone. It's not a special thing for only certain people that are going to like, oh, well, I'm the pastor, so I have a closer relationship with God than everybody else. No, no, it's for everybody. Everybody has the same access to God, the same level of connection with God. People are called into different offices and different giftings and that sort of thing. But it's not like a certain people have a better relationship with God. That's just not the, the case. And then that there is an initial physical evidence, and that is speaking in tongues. But with the things that I discussed earlier, that can throw kind of a monkey wrench in the evidence sometimes. So, all right. And you're done for the night.